0: Today, we're continuing on in our series. Now, just a quick warning. Um, today's a PG13 sermon. There are sometimes things in the Bible that make us uh, blush and make us a little uncomfortable. Uh, today will be one of those days. Um, I, I will do my best not to make you too uncomfortable, but I want to make sure I'm saying what the Bible's saying. So we're continuing on in the book of James, and we're in so grab a Bible if you want to. It'll be up on the screen too, but we're James 4 verses 3 through 10, and so you can go ahead and turn there, and as you're turning there, uh, I want to tell you this, that each week what James is doing is he's challenging us to become people who open up our eyes and see who it is that we're meant to become, and then live into that person that we are meant to become, and if... You know, if you could just get there today where you say something like this, it's time for me to make some changes. And every single one of us here ought to be able to say that about something in our life. And if you could get, just get to that place, then today's going to be a great day for you. And, and James, along the way, has been brutally honest with us about what we've become and about what we could have become, but he also tells us about what we could become by the grace of God. And so what he's done each week is he's, he's kind of giving us a gut punch, like let's do a reality check, but at the same time it's like he's punching us with the grace of God that will lead us to become who we're meant to become. And so he gives us a challenge, and it's a beautiful picture that he gives us of us depending on God to become who we're made to become. So, I, so something about Christianity that you need to know is that God always provides for us what he requires of us. So he demands perfection from us and we don't reach it. So he gives us forgiveness. But not just forgiveness, he, gra- he, he gives us the perfect record of Christ, and credit it to us. But look, he's not just doing that. So he's not just saying, hey, you have this new perfect record now that's up here. Like, you're down here right now. Here's your record way up here. But then, he provides the strength for us to gradually become the version of us we're meant to become. And if you will realize today that you've only scratched the surface Of who you're made to become then you'll begin to depend on him to help you become who it is that the real version of you is meant to be and when you find that you're going to find that you're made of the stuff of heaven you're made of the stuff of wonder and you're made of the stuff that's going to make you realize you've you've barely seen the heights of what you're made to become and today you're going to see that One day you will be forever changed, but even now you're forever changing. So let me read our verses. James 4, 3 through 10. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. All right, I just want to ask you to be open-minded to four essential truths that if you catch these truths, they will begin to be truths that lead you to be changed now and forever. So the truths are this. The The first point, discovering the depth of your sin. The second is going to be discovering the depth of God's jealousy. The third is discovering the depth of God's grace. And then the fourth is discovering the depth of your own faith. So first one, the depth of your sin. James pulls no punches. I'm going to pull no punches. He starts off and he says, you adulterous people in verse four. Now, This is a theme that runs through the entire course of scripture, where God is seeking to tell us what it is like for him to be in a relationship with us. And what he says is it's like being with an adulterous bride. An adulterous bride that is consistently and constantly leaving the home of God and running off into the arms of other lovers. And then in the book of Jeremiah, God, for a number of chapters, just talks about what it is like for him to be in a relationship with us, and he he, he tells us what we do, and here's what he says. He says, you, my people, are like a whore that goes underneath the tree and spreads her legs to other lovers. Told you it was going to get weird. And he says, this is what it's like for me to be in a relationship with you. And then, not only... Okay, so so first, what does this image mean? Well, here's what it means. We're running from him. We are lacking in devotion to him. We're lacking in trust to him. Our allegiance has been divided. And we have promises that we have made to God that have been cracked. And our heart has been set upon things that are not God. So sin is adultery against God. And it's, it means that we have a, pro, a heart that is prone to wander right into the arms of other lovers that are not God. And what James wants us to see is every single time we sin, we are like that woman underneath the tree with other lovers. And then while the prophet Jeremiah gives this this, image. In the book of Hosea, we get another image. And God says to Hosea, the prophet, I want you to live your entire life in a way that displays what it is like for me to be in a relationship with my people. And what he tells to Hosea to do is to go and marry a prostitute. Her name's Gomer. And to take her out of the, her, the life that she's living and love her well. But She's going to keep returning back to her old life over and over and over again. And you've got to continue to love her well through it. And God says, this is what it's like for me to be in a relationship with my people. And then we look at verse 3 and we see how vile and depraved we actually have become in doing this. Verse 3 says, the reason you ask God in prayer and don't get what you are asking for is because you ask wrongly to spend things on your passions. So, this prayer, he's connecting to the next verse with adultery, speaking of this word passions. And the image that James is after is this We are, we go to God in prayer, or here's what your prayer life looks like. You are the woman that's underneath the tree in the arms of another lover. And in the midst of that act, You have the audacity to go to God in prayer and ask Him to give you things that you love and want more than Him. It's like in the middle of the act, you are asking your true spouse to give you a gift for you and your other lover. Now, side note on prayer. God will always give you what you ask for if you ask it with the same amount of wisdom that he has. In other words, the reason you're asking God for things and not getting them is because you lack his wisdom and you're asking for things that you don't need or you shouldn't have. But that's not what our verses are saying. Our verses are saying the reason oftentimes that God does not give you what you ask for is because you are like the woman under the tree. And God, what he really ultimately wants is you. And what prayer is meant to be is intimacy with God. But in the midst of this intimate act with God, you're actually being intimate with some other lover other than God. And so God doesn't give us what, you give us what we ask for because he just simply wants you. He wants to be with you. I mean, that's at the core of what prayer is, is about your heart being changed and then you being with God. But we make ourselves intimate with things of this world, and then we go to God in prayer to give us the things to be intimate with in this world when prayer is meant to be intimacy with Him. Now, I'm going to tie all this together, because in order to really understand this, we've got to go back a few verses and go back a few weeks where James starts talking about wisdom. Wisdom. And he talks about the meekness of wisdom. And this word meekness means someone who is seeking to build God's kingdom. So if you're a meek person, it doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean like what we typically think of. It means you are someone who is fighting for the kingdom of God to come. But what we actually do is we seek for our own kingdom to come. We have this own, our own world that we are trying to build. And then what we do, James is saying, is we go to God in prayer... To ask him to give us things that are going to help bur- build the kingdom that we are trying to build ourselves, and this kingdom that we are trying to build with another lover other than God. And the problem is this kingdom that we're trying to build it as our own is only going to lead to ruin in our own life. But we still try to build it, because we don't really think that God's kingdom is good enough. We'd rather build something with our secret lover. And so, what really ends up happening is we want success, we want approval in life, we want comfort in life, we want control in life, and then another false lover comes around and says, I'm going to help you get what you want, I'm going to help you build this kingdom, and we use anything that we can, the things of this world, to help build the kingdom that we really want for ourselves. In other words, you want your own kingdom where you are the king, where you're in control. It's yours. And God threatens that. And so we run off with another lover so that we can get what we really want. And, all right, let me get really practical now. So these other lovers... What are they? Well, they could be anything that's good that you turn into the God of your life. And so what you do is you spread your legs to your job. Hoping it's going to give you the promises that your job has been telling you it's going to give you. It's going to give you the successful life that you want. Everything that you've been dreaming of. This comfortable life that you're using, but the money that you get to chase after. And what you do is in the midst of that, in the midst of this act with your job under the tree, you then ask God to give you a promotion or to ask God to give you more success. And what you're doing is you've just made your job the one that you are with under that tree. And then you go to God in prayer and ask him to give you something that you love more than him. This job. Success in this career. When all the while he's saying, but I'm right here. I'm so much greater than your job. Stop going to this job. Or spread your legs to possessions and say, God, give me more of what I already have so that I could build my kingdom to be even greater. And it disgusts him because he's there and he's saying again, am I not enough? Or just to any, just a person you do this to. And and what you really want is you're just seeking after some type of love. And God says, I am the God of the universe and I love you more than anybody else will ever love you. Stop running into their arms and start running right into my arms. Or, aim or popularity or just something in your own little friendship group that if everyone could just think that you're amazingly awesome. And God says I'm the maker of the universe and I approve of you and I love you and I delight in you. Why is that not enough? Or spreading your legs to your own self-loathing where you're just depressed about yourself and who you are and all you are doing is being consumed with everything about you and all the ways that you aren't measuring up and just self-loathing after self-loathing. And you know why that's happening to you? Because you are in the arms of another lover that's telling you you're not enough. You're not hearing the words of your true lover God. and, and, And here's the thing, he just wants to be with you. He wants you That's what prayer is. You should ask God for things. That's a good thing. But guess what? When you go and you're with God and you experience intimacy with him as the God of the cosmos, you know what starts happening? You start asking God for things that are very different than you were asking for before because your heart's being changed by him. He just wants you because he's what? A jealous God. This is our second point. The depth of God's jealousy. Um, A few years ago, Oprah Winfrey said something along the lines of, and this, for whatever reason, this, like, got very popular, so she said something along the lines of, I can't believe that there is a jealous God. So she reads the Old Testament, and it's in the New Testament, too, that God is a jealous God. She says, the Bible must be wrong because God cannot be a jealous God. And this gained a lot of traction with her followers. Now, let me just tell you, listen, one, she's wrong, but two, she has missed some beautiful truth that, By God being a jealous God, it means that it's breaking his heart that we are doing this act underneath this tree with other lovers that are not God. She's missed that it's breaking God's heart. So in verse 5, it says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, this means something marvelous It means something breathtakingly glorious. When someone says that they're a Christian, it means that they have gone all in with Christ. And when that happens, the Father deposits His Holy Spirit into the soul of the Christian. And then, the Spirit of God in the Christian starts groaning for the father yearning for the father wanting to be connected to the father and the father at the same time yearns for the spirit so this is how we're united to god so how you think about this is there is a trinitarian dance between the father the son and the spirit and in this dance Each person of the Trinity is seeking the glory of the other. They are seeking to honor the other. They are selflessly screaming and dancing and singing of the glory of the other. And it's a dance of ecstasy, a dance of wonder, it's a dance of peace. And to be a Christian means you have been swept up into that dance because the Holy Spirit is now dwelling within you. And so there's this Trinitarian dance that's happening. You become swept up into it. So listen to me. If you are being plagued with suffering in your life, pain in your life, loss in your life, difficulties, and you can't get your attention off of those things, it's because you're not in a dance with God. Because if you are... You cry like that if you're not. And if you're in the dance, it's not that the suffering and the difficulties and the pain goes away. It's that you have something that's more glorious, more weighty than the suffering and the pain. And so your eyes are fixed on how glorious God is. And that is what worship is. That's what it means to praise God, to be swept up into this dance and to be so fixated on him that The pain and suffering don't necessarily go away. You just have something that's greater that's got your attention. So when you sin, it's leaving the dance. But it's also like somehow, though I don't understand it, you're ripping the Father away from the Spirit of God. And it pains him. And so he yearns jealously because we have gone underneath the tree to some other lover. And every time we do that, it's like we're somehow ripping apart this beautiful Trinitarian dance. So that's what James says. When the the word says you're being double-minded, A better translation might be double-souled. It's a word that James just made up. And what what he's getting at is that your soul is being ripped apart because your soul and the spirit in your soul demands to be connected to the Father, but then you're going and joining yourself to something else. Sin is to leave the dance and to go under the tree. And when you do this, it pains the God who loves you more than you know. Now the question becomes, why would God keep doing this to himself? Why wouldn't he just give up on us? Because it's very clear that we're causing God a lot of pain. That's the kind of God we have. A God who's willing to endure pain, but why? Because of his grace. This is our third point, the depth of God's grace. When it says in verse 6 that God gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is to mean that even though we keep breaking God's heart, He continues to be gracious to us. See, sometimes underneath the tree, you're wanting something more than God. Success, money, fame, Approval, image, beauty, whatever it is. Think of the thing for you. Whatever it is, you just want it. And sometimes you pray to God and he gives it to you. And then the next thing you know, you you ask God for it again and he takes it away. Why did he do that? He's being gracious to you. Because your life is being consumed by something that's killing you and you don't even know it. And what he's skidding at is, look, I gave you this before, and I was just, perhaps he was just happy that you finally went and talked to him. That you at least brought your attention to him, but then it's like he's ready for you to go on to maturity. So he takes the thing away from you that you're asking for. God's grace will not let you stay under the tree anymore. Here's what he also does. So he's graciously forgiving you in this act of adultery spiritual adultery, but then he graciously pursues you by leaving you because he's a shepherd and he's a good shepherd, which means he's always pursuing you, but sometimes in his wisdom he knows that the way he pursues you best is by distancing himself from you so that you will finally realize this thing that I'm doing has taken me away from God and it is not worth it. The God that I love is gone from me. And this thing does not measure up to who he is and what he has done for me. So you leave your phony lover and you go back to God. You humble yourself. You draw near to him. And then he draws near to you. But he never left you. He was always pursuing you. Just in a way that was infinitely wise. He's a shepherd. In the story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, there's a son who's called the prodigal son. And this son has a huge inheritance that is coming to him when his father dies. But he wants the inheritance now. So he goes to his father and asks for it now, which, which in this time is, is essentially him saying, I'd rather you just go ahead and die already so I can get what's coming to me. And the father knows that the son is lost to him. The son cares nothing for him. And it breaks his father's heart, but the father knows that if he lords it over his son and doesn't give him the inheritance, then the son might stick around, but he never actually has his son. So he has to let him go. And so he gives him this inheritance, and immediately the son leaves. And he takes all of that he has, and he squanders it, and it's lost. And then he says to himself, I want to go home. But then he devises this plan of how he's going to get back to earning his father's approval. And he's going to do a bunch of work. The work of what his father's servants were doing. So he has this plan and he starts making his way back home. And his father sees him when he's far off. And his father does what? He takes off running to him. And he wraps him up in his arms and he embraces him, and he restores him back as his son, and he throws a huge party for him. Now, all of us, in some way, are just like this prodigal, where we're running from God. In some area of your life, you are running. And in some area in your life, you are underneath that tree. And it's time for you to return to God. It's time for you to go home. This is our last point, the depth of your faith. For some of you, it's time for the first time for you to go to God and go all in and stop holding back. For some of you, you have gone gone to God, but you've wandered again. And it's time for you to return to him. And for some of you, it's time for you to go on to maturity to go 100%, to stop being double-minded in your devotion to God, but be single-mindedly devoted to God, giving Him all of who you are in every area of your life. And for every single one of us, it's time to start dancing with God in this grand Trinitarian dance and to stop messing and flirting with whatever's underneath that tree. So how do you do that? How do you go to Him for the first time? How do you go on to maturity? How do you grow in your faith? It says in verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Meaning, go all in. Be 100% devoted to Him and stop returning to that tree over and over and over again. Stop being double-souled in your prayers. And then it says in verse 9 this really weird thing be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now Paul has or not Paul James James has been talking about joy all throughout his letter here. So why is he telling us to take our joy and turn it to mourning? Well, this is the strange process of repentance. And if you want to be someone who grows a lot as a Christian, you've got to get really good at repentance. And here's what repentance is. First, verse 8. Go back. Verse 8. What? What's happening in verse 8? You're seeing that you need to make some changes in your life. And you say, okay, it's time to make some changes. But as soon as you say that, you realize, I've got to go to God. <laughs> and I've got to say something to him. I've got to tell him I'm sorry. And then you take that walk of shame because you know he's going to know everything now. And perhaps he already does. But you've got to come clean. And so what happens is this, more, this this joy in you turns to mourning because it's like you've been caught in the act. So you take this walk of shame to him. And as soon as you get to him what you find is he's come running. And he's wrapped you up in his arms. And he just lavishes you with grace and as he lavishes you with grace what happens is that joy that you did have that was a false joy that turned to mourning that mourning now turns into a true joy that is only found when you have discovered the depth of his grace and then you respond to this grace by going all in with him you don't go all in with him until you have discovered that grace So if you're having trouble following him, you're missing grace somewhere. You've got to find it. But when you find it, you realize that he's been following you around, ready to offer that grace everywhere you went. And then as soon as you find it and you start changing, you say to him, I'm never going to do this again to you. And then tomorrow happens. And you've done it again. And it's okay. But it's not. But it is. Because then you just go right back to him again. You get really good at repentance. Because you will continue to sin. But every time you do, you return back to him. And he's there waiting. Pursuing the whole time. And you got to know this about him. This combination of his jealousy and of his grace. It costs him everything. cost him his son, but not only that, the Trinitarian dance is ripped apart so he can get you back. So here's what's happened. Everything that you have joined yourself to underneath that tree that you made more important than God, it has a claim on you. Spiritually, those things have a claim on your soul, and he has to free you from that. And so here's how it happens you're under the tree, and you have joined yourself to something of this world that has a spiritual claim on you. And he walks up and catches you underneath that tree in the act. But it's a nightmare for you because when you see him, you realize now what's happened that you've been tricked, that your lover under the tree was actually not going to ever give you a great kingdom, but a kingdom that would crumble. And that tree that you are under is actually represents a cross. And that cross is yours. And that false lover has made you destined for that cross. But Jesus has walked up And before you get to that cross, he climbs up on it. And he looks at you and he said, this is the only way. The only way I win you back. The only way my jealous heart can have you is by me taking this cross that was yours and making it mine. So I could free you from the claim that the things of this world have on you. And so I can buy your forgiveness for what you've done. So he does it. And he climbs up on the cross, and there he looks at you, and he says, when you see me again, come running. And after that, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place In all of Scripture where Jesus doesn't call God Father here. Why? Because in that moment, he is ripped from the dance with his Father and the Spirit of God. And he is there alone, naked, because of what we have done. But he wants to do it because it's his only way to get you. And then, he rises from the grave, united back to his Father his spirit dwelling in us, and we see him and he sees us and both take off running and we embrace him as our God and as our king. And when we do join to him, we have all the power in the world to become who we've been made to become. He's the king. And he did it all for us, all for you. Because he's jealous for you. And he's gracious. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would see that this deadly combination of jealousy and grace has led you to do what you have done for us by sending your son. Jesus, we thank you that you've done it for us. And we pray now that in seeing this truth, that we would devote ourselves to you fully with all of our being 100% and that we would know from the bottom of our hearts to the top of our heads that this is not stealing anything away from our kingdom but in fact this is bringing your kingdom but it's a kingdom that is yours that we get to be part of and so it's our kingdom together with you God help us see it help us know it And help us trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.